This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. To, of course, get an update on what is going on in Caledonia, we're joined by Ken Hewitt, Mayor of Haldeman County. He is with us now. Hello, Ken. Thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. What's the feeling in Caledonia? Well, thanks for having me, Scott. And uh, I, I think people are, you know, they're still frustrated. It's uh, It's been a, a challenging weekend. Uh, you know, as you know, we've, we've managed to, to, you know, to get Argyle Street open, uh, and subsequently they closed the bypass. Uh, bypass now is uh, it's it's not officially open, but the uh, the blockade has been removed from the bypass, and, and MTO is currently just uh, ensuring the safety of this, the the road before they open it to the public. Okay, so give us an update again. What uh, what is open? What is going to open? What what can you tell us there? Give us that one more time. So so Argyle Street, the main street going through Caledonia, is is open right. as we speak. The bypass, Highway 6 bypass, is closed uh, for about another hour and a half just to get the uh, the road cleaned and, and ensure that, it, that it's safe for, for people to travel on. Uh, there are no protesters on Highway 6 bypass uh, as well as on Argyle. They're, they're, the streets are, are officially uh, cleared, just not officially opened. Uh, but as uh, within an hour and a half or so, once the road is inspected and cleaned up, does that mean everything is open? There are no blockades up? That means there's no blockades up. Uh, there are um, protesters that are currently uh, at the Douglas Creek Estate site, but they're not on the road. They're on the site itself. And um, so how did we get to this stage uh, overnight, and and are you confident that the, it, the streets will remain open? Well, Scott, I'd like to say I'm confident, but uh, as you know, this is uh, it's pretty fluid, and, and uh, you know, how the, the OPP choose to react to a certain situation is, is, is unbeknown to many to us, but certainly known to them. Um, the... Uh, um, you know, I think that uh, how we got here is, is uh, there's been a number uh, of people applying pressure from different levels within Six Nations, uh, some outside, such as myself with Haldeman County. There's been pressure from, of course, different agencies, province uh, as well. So I think overall it's just been, uh, you know, I guess a decision made by the protesters themselves that... Uh, that it was time to, to, to move off of the road, uh, and uh, they did that. But uh, uh, another group, uh, or uh, I guess a dissatisfied group or disagreed group, chose to to take it one step further and go to uh, to the bypass. And uh, that didn't last long. The OPP uh, were uh, in place to ensure that that wasn't going to last long, and, and they they had them scatter and, uh, and arrests and charges are pending. Um, so, w- as you mentioned, I mean, over the weekend, it, it kind of escalated, then it went back down, and now all of the bl- blockades are in the process of being removed. What's different now to last time this all happened? Um, what, 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 or, or even when initially this, this initial blockade went up uh, just a couple of weeks ago, because it was up for quite a while. H- how did we get to where we are so quickly, considering what happened last time? Yeah, unfortunately, this this situation was more of a self-serving situation. It was it was one uh, individual who who disagreed with the the band council and, and disagreed with um, uh, the use of the birch lands that were given 
to the band, uh, and uh, and so it was, uh, you know, Scott probably just to, to round it down to its simplest form. It was all about money, and it was an internal uh, disagreement between uh, the band council and this one individual over who was going to gain the, the the dollars, the economics from the crop that was on that land, and that crop is tobacco. Mm-hmm. You know, to draw a conclusion as to what the cost or value of tobacco is. And uh, and that's what this was, and so it was an easy uh, it was an easy place to set up a uh, blockade in Caledonia because unfortunately uh, that precedence has been set, and uh, and everybody who's in that radical world knows the OPP's policy and framework on how to deal with Aboriginal issues, especially when they hide behind the idea that it's a land claim when it had nothing to do with that. Hmm. Uh, you talked about a precedence being set here, obviously, with the way the last situation was held. The fact that this one was he- uh, outcome was quite different. Has there uh, has has another precedence been set here? Well, it's, it's so in other problem. words, like so in other words, if you've got a valid land, land claim issue or, or there's an issue similar to the to the last one, that's one thing. But you can't be closing down roads for every sort of internal squabble that goes on. Well, you shouldn't be, and that's our argument, and has been our argument that you know what are we saying? I mean, every time there's an internal squabble, uh, someone cries, you know, foul, stands on a road, hides behind the land claim, and this is the kind of reaction we're going to get, which we, you know, it's just not sustainable. And I mean, my my letter and comments to the government were is that you know you've got a policy in how you want to react to these types of situations. There's there's a total other precedence here that's being set that needs to be reviewed and looked at. And, and you know, if we're going to go down this path, we really do need to, to take a look at that. Uh, at the same time, there's an economic uh, uh, cost. And this uh, sent a number of summer students home with no jobs. This sent uh, many employers who live here um, derive an income from a family business uh, and sent them, uh, you know, 30, 40% down. Um, so it, it, you can't simply just say this is how we're going to react to an Aboriginal incident and, you know, for, you know, for everybody else, well, too bad for you. Um, they have rights as well. And, and so, you know, we have to look at balancing the rights of those against the protesters as well as protecting the rights of the protesters themselves. And uh, a 21-day standoff uh, on a road that has a significant economic impact is just not acceptable. Uh, you, you talked about how uh, this was an internal issue. It, 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 it ended up being over money. Um, where did the solution come from? Did the solution come from within, or did the solution come from uh, OPP, government, whatever, saying, you know what, this case doesn't hold up here, this has got to come down? <laughs> it's, well, I'm glad you asked that question, because as absurd as it may sound, the solution came from everyone being distracted to a few radicals standing on a road, causing everyone grief, to the very individual removing the crops off the land, while nobody stopped her from doing it. So, in, in other words, she uh, was able to get, you know, the crops and the economic uh, value of that crop off the land while everybody was enduring the hardship of the protest. So where does That's this... Where, where does... The, wow. Where does this discussion go from here, Ken? 
Um, are you, uh, in, in one sense, it feels, it sounds like it was resolved through internal policies. That being said, you're not confident this sort of tactic will not be used again. Well, I'd like to say that uh, it wouldn't, but I certainly, I've got nothing uh, in place today that would suggest that it couldn't happen again. Um, there's, I mean, we, we have no policy, we have no no real ability uh, or direction from the province and certainly the OPP in terms of how are we going to deal with these types of internal struggles, um, you know, that that start in the in the middle of Six Nations but spill over to, you know, the communities outside. How do we respond to that? There's nothing out there that, that, that answers that question. So until that happens, I, I, I can't confidently say that uh, we won't be having this discussion again. Uh, why, why does this become a distraction around land claims, uh, even though, and I mean, we've had this discussion before other, uh, over other developments that have been uh, planned for Caledonia or ongoing in Caledonia. Um, why, whenever there's an internal struggle, does it become a land claim issue? Well, in my opinion, it's, it's, it's easy to hide, and especially in this particular case, it was easy to hide behind the land claim because that's what gives some, some meaning to the protest. Uh, in the past, uh, it was a different dynamic, and, and, and it, was, it was more of a national issue in, in, in gaining you know, recognition towards um, the federal government trying to resolve land, or not trying to resolve land claims. And so um, <clears throat> what, what we're doing now is we're simply telling any radical in the, in the country to, you know, if they choose to want to protest against any issue, if they hide behind the guise of a land claim, they're likely going to get a different response than they would in, them, in any other situation. So this is an issue between the Confederacy and the elected band council? Well, the Confederacy has not publicly spoken uh, for or against this particular protest. There's been some conversation that we've obtained that would suggest that the Confederacy did did not support this uh, individual's protest. As far as the land being given to the band council, that's an internal decision uh, or, or struggle, I guess, if you will, as to who has the right to govern that land and who has the right to decide who's going to use the land. And where does the value from that land go? I mean, ultimately, you know, in my opinion, again, this is outside, but you know, the land was given to the, for the benefit of the community at large, so the community at large should benefit from the, the, the resources of that land. So, in the end, this was about a field of tobacco and who owned the product on it. To sum it up, that's about as simple as you can make it, and that's exactly what uh, what this was was a struggle for the, the tobacco and the dollars that went with it. How did how was this resolved? How did it get to this? How did it get to the point where the barricades were removed? Who has claim to that? Well, as I mentioned, she's removed the majority of the tobacco off the land. Un, 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 unopposed, while the distraction and, and many of the frustration was was over here in Caledonia, in a separate county, uh, you know, worried about uh, you know traffic flow, and, uh, and unfortunately, so in her best interest to have the blockade to distract the way that the fact that the tobacco was being harvested. 
in my opinion, that was part of the strategy and the ploy, is that, uh, um, you know, have that distraction. And, uh, and, and, and there's some other underlying uh, economics at play. I mean, we, as you know, uh, if you're familiar with the area, there's, there's a number of businesses uh, that have popped up, um, you know, on Highway 54 toward mm-hmm. Brantford. Mm-hmm. Uh, gas stations and cigarette shops, as well as uh, there's a number of businesses that have propped up uh, on, on Six Line heading into to Six Nations Reservation, and uh, and you know the challenge is is uh, is where does the is, is is trying to direct the traffic, if you will. This individual, um, as a result of the blockade in Caledonia, uh, saw about a fifteen thousand a day uh, increase uh, in her. Mm-hmm. Fuel uh, uh, revenues because of the gas station she owns on Highway 54. Uh, so it's not it's not difficult to draw the lines. Of no. Uh, so how how do the people of Caledonia feel about this? What what you know? I mean, considering what has happened in the past, and 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 hopefully wounds that have been healed from the past. What does that do with all of that? I think to sum it up, Scott, we're we're frustrated and angry because we've we've made some very good uh, inroads in trying to reestablish and rebuild uh, the two communities. We've had some very good success uh, in the last uh, couple of years. We're seeing good growth coming to Caledonia again, and it's synergistic growth. It's going to benefit both Caledonia and Six Nations. We're seeing good growth happening on Six Nations. And, uh, and and again, it's, it's 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 working well together. It's it's frustrating because it's it's the minds of one or two individuals that corrupt and cause problems for the majority, and and that's what we're seeing. And, and I know that most people in Caledonia they you know they don't like the response uh, that has been taken from the OPP. They don't. They understand it's not the individuals on the street. They know it's being directed from above, and uh, it's just a frustrating piece of policy that nobody here supports, and, and nobody sees it as being valued. So, whose whose job is it to correct that policy? Who, well, who who's dropping well, the ball here? I, I well, I think it's twofold. I think it's it's the policymakers in the in the ministry uh, with respect to the province, and and it's. Uh, it's the OPP brass. Uh, you know, we whether it's municipal or whether it's provincial, we we have very little say in terms of operations, and so the commissioner and his team uh, would determine how they're going to respond to certain incidents and situations. And I think they need to look at this uh, and reevaluate. Um, because it's a flawed piece of policy. Will this help this, Ken? Will this situation that, that came down here, because everybody's kind of going, what's going on here? Like, what's the problem here? So will this now bring this sort of issue to surface? Will this bring this to light? People, look, see, look what's going on here. This isn't about us. It's about an internal situation that that that, that, that the rest are being dragged into. I, I, I would like to say I hope so. I, I, I can't say for certain where the policymakers in Toronto are going to take this. Um, you know, most things that get uh, driven with respect to policy are usually politically charged and, and done so in a way that uh, is going to generate support for that particular party at some point. Uh, you know, we're not stupid or naive to believe that decisions aren't made for, for elections and votes. And so this is such a, a small uh, 
you know, small piece in the bigger puzzle. And, and in terms of, you know, us out there in Caledonia and, and Haldeman, and we represent, uh, you know, very, very little in terms of power or ability mm. to exercise power with respect to the province in, in future elections. Ken Hewitt has been with us, Mayor of Haldeman County. The good news is the blockades in Caledonia in the process of coming down. Uh, everybody hopes that uh, these issues can be resolved without such tactics. Ken, thank you for the time. As always, much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. North Korea over the weekend tests a hydrogen bomb. Uh, the U.S. ambassador says that North Korea is, quote, begging for war. To talk more about all of this, Julian Schofield is with us, associate professor, Department of Political Science, Concordia University, specializing in security, strategic studies in South and Southeast Asia. Uh, Julian is with us now. Thank you for taking the time to join us, Julian. Uh, the U.S. ambassador says North Korea is begging for war. What does that mean? Well, uh, normally when a country goes uh, uh, nuclear or tries to build up a nuclear arsenal, they, they do it on the sly. They, they do it with a fair bit of stealth. When India was working on it, they, they carefully played down their missile program, but they made sure that when the missiles were ready, the bombs were ready at the same time. Here, uh, Kim Jong-un is, is using the fact that he's building a program to put pressure on the Chinese uh, and the Japanese and the Americans to get what he wants. And so it, it, it's very, very provocative. It's, it's almost as if he's, he's doing exactly what you would want someone to do if you were going to uh, bomb them. Is his bark worse than his bite? Where does this go? I think that the problem with the Kim Jong-un, he doesn't, uh, like Saddam Hussein before him and Gaddafi before him, um, he doesn't really understand the environment he's playing in. So I don't think he knows if he's, if he's actually intending on, on being aggressive. We know that uh, uh, 10 years ago, uh, before uh, North Korea started its current um, uh, gambit to get nuclear weapons, it engaged in a lot of state-sponsored terrorism. Um, from the 1990s, uh, 1980s and 1990s, it, it's abducted 12 uh, Japanese uh, uh, citizens. It's blown up an airliner. It's blown up a hotel. It did a submarine commando raid uh, in South Korea in 96. In 2002, they sank a, a patrol ship from the South Korean Navy. In uh, 2012, they, they uh, um, uh, sank a, a destroyer, killing 46 sailors. Um, uh, just uh, two years ago, they shelled, uh, or three years ago, they shelled islands at Yongpyong off the coast of South Korea. So uh, he's going to go back to doing what he was doing uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago him and his father and, and his grandfather, uh, if they get a nuclear umbrella. Uh, so he's looking for protection. So, you know, if we let them have the bomb, they're not going to become more normal. They're going to go back to being uh, uh, dangerously volatile. Can he bomb or threaten to bomb his way out of sanctions, in, you know, into profitability? I mean, what's his end game here? Uh, his resources come from China, uh, and when the Chinese uh, disappoint him, he goes to the Russians. In 2013, the Russians uh, supplied the fuel that the Chinese didn't. So he, he's, he's no longer able to extract resources from the Americans. In the early 90s, when uh, North Korea was, was detected uh, fixing their Yongbyon reactor, they wanted to build a, a much larger reactor next to the research reactor that they had, they entered into an agreement with, with six, six major powers, including the U.S. and Japan and China and Russia, and they provide uh, material to build light water reactors that couldn't be used to make the fissile material for nuclear weapons. And this went on fine until 2002. 
the Koreans cheated a little bit, and North Koreans cheated a little bit, and the Americans were, were perhaps pushing a, a political line that was a little bit too aggressive, so the agreement collapsed. And so um, um, and that, that was the last time that diplomacy worked. Um, I don't think it's going to work again uh, with the West. I, I think the Americans are either going to do nothing or they're going to bomb. Sanctions are going to target the Chinese. The North Koreans had, a, had a, a program after the end of the Cold War to start trading again, and they were trading with a couple of countries, including India, on quite a large scale. But when the scandal broke out, because they, they, the North Koreans, I guess stupidly, from a tactical point of view, admitted to abducting Japanese citizens off of beaches using commandos and then imprisoning them, imprisoning them for 10, 20 years, it, it incensed the Japanese, who then had a campaign of going around the world and threatening countries like India that if they traded with North Korea, they would cut off trade. So now the North Koreans are completely cut off with trade. I mean, anyone that trades with them is not going to trade with the Japanese, and so they can only trade with China and, and Russia. So um, uh, this nuclear weapons program, the, 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 the loudness of it, is meant to get the Chinese to continue providing resources. If they don't, uh, the, the regime could collapse. So where is China and Russia now that they've created this beast? Well, they, I mean, it used to be the, the conventional wisdom was you never give nuclear weapons to a bloody neighbor because, of course, they can uh, turn them on you. And, and uh, I, I think the Chinese are regretting a little bit about their restraint, but there's not much they can do now. Uh, I, I give the Russians and Chinese credit. During the Cold War, they never allowed North Korea to get nuclear weapons. Uh, the Russians blocked the North Koreans trying to get uh, nuclear weapons from uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, where they had experience with nuclear reactors. Um, uh, their missile program started with an American ally, Egypt, who sold them a Scud missile uh, in the late, late 70s. And then this missile was, was uh, 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 reproduced many times, and the North Koreans sold it to the Iranians and Iraqis during the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s, and they took that money, uh, and then they started building a, a nuclear weapons program on their own. And then they cut a deal with Pakistan uh, to get more uh, technology. Um, when, their, when their nuclear plutonium reactors um, uh, were not creating fissile material fast enough, the Pakistanis showed them how to create uranium-235 using centrifuge technology. So um, it's basically, basically they're, they're alone. And, and um, uh, China and Russia provide them everything else, you know, things that are not related to, uh, to technology. The Chinese, I, I think, would like to rein in this, uh, because if they don't, then the South Koreans and the Japanese will consider going um, uh, nuclear. Um, um, let's not forget that the Japanese have um, the, the third largest um, enrichment uh, program on the planet, meaning that they can take normal uranium-238, and convert it to uranium-235, or rather extract uranium-235 from it. Um, they also have a plutonium uh, reprocessing facility at Rakamashura, which is also the third largest in the world. So if North Korea gets too aggressive, China will create a sort of an encircling environment. It'll, it'll uh, provoke all of its neighbors one by one uh, to build nuclear weapons, and then China's power will be significantly diminished. But for some reason, the Chinese are paralyzed. So how much control do they have over North Korea? Because Trump makes it sound like, hey, take care of these guys. What's the problem? You're bigger than them. Crush them like a pea. What's the problem here? I, th I think, you know, I think Trump's right. I think um, the Chinese think that uh, it, it's a hot potato, but uh, at, at least it's hurting their enemies more than it's hurting them. And then they do have issues with North Korea. They've got a border dispute, and occasionally North Korean border guards uh, do shoot at the Chinese. And the North Koreans have never served the Chinese. I mean, during the Korean War, the North Korean and Chinese fought side by side. Um, 
so they you know they're resisting this but i i mean i i think there's probably um an, an issue inside the regime and that is that china's got two close allies they got pakistan and they got they got north korea and pakistan is is significantly more restrained than North Korea, but it's democracy, which means the Chinese don't understand it. Uh, they have a great deal of difficulty competing with Saudi influence and, um, and American influence in Pakistan. North Korea, they don't have that problem. And so, uh, you know, better the enemy that you know. Uh, if, if North Korea were to fall and become a democracy, even if the Americans were somehow kicked off the uh, Korean Peninsula by United Korea, you'd still have a very powerful democracy here that could uh, directly challenge uh, uh, Chinese influence. So I, I think the Chinese Communist Party is, is doing nothing. I think they're doing nothing because they don't know what to do. What about Russia? Uh, Russia provides money in exchange for labor. Uh, the Russians are also in the business of basically getting revenge on NATO and the Americans. I mean, at the end of the Cold War, NATO promised not to go into Eastern Europe. So they're more than happy just to let uh, North Korea poke a stick at the rest of the world. Yeah, they want they want uh, they want uh, North Korea to uh, yeah to, to to basically absorb American attention. So at the end of the day, how is Trump's rhetoric playing into all of this? Because for the longest time, we seemed, or, or the leaders of, of, of the free world, seemed to ignore what Kim Jong-un was doing. Uh, it seems that Trump's playing right into his hands with the rhetoric. Is that accurate? I think that's accurate. I think Trump lacks experience. I think what Trump should have done is initially walk quietly. Uh, 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 George Bush Sr., uh, who was the U.S. president when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 91, uh, he basically created a coalition. He went to the U.N., uh, and then he went to NATO, and he got a broad coalition of support. He went into the region itself. Uh, Trump's not doing that. I mean, Trump's mixing his trade policy, which is going, you know, going alone and, and you know, and ending all these uh, arrangements with other countries, and he's mixing that up with security policy, where you know the Americans are ahead of a, of a large global alliance, and um, the the result is he's still America is still alone. I and mean, if, if I, I think it's reasonable that they could probably get support for. Uh, a, a military strike, I mean, an actual military strike, but they have to consult their allies. Um, and so far, they, they, you know, the, the big issue is their two, their two most important allies in the region are South Korea and Japan, and Trump has not spent any effort trying to get those two to work together. And the Japanese Koreans, they don't get along for you know, a variety of historical reasons and, and uh, territorial dispute reasons. They, they have a dispute over an island in, in the Sea of Japan. So um, that's what he should be doing. He, he, Trump should be organizing a coalition, and he's not. And I, I suspect it's his lack of experience and the fact that most of his advisors now are, are not State Department people. They're former Pentagon people. So, uh, obviously, Trump is speaking out. Anybody who trades uh, uh, with North Korea will be penalized. China obviously fits right into that. Many are saying he can't do this. It's impossible to make this uh, sort of demand. But how would China interpret that? No, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's a bad threat to make. I think the Chinese need to be reminded that the escalation dominance is against them. I mean, if you look at a worst-case scenario, the Americans want to go after North Korea. They put, they put aircraft in South Korea. They put aircraft in Guam. They're going to strike North Korea. Uh, they they uh, embargo some, some companies in China. So the Chinese retaliate by uh, blocking Americans at the U.N., and then they provide some surface-air missiles and oil to the North Koreans. And then the Americans actually strike uh, North Korea, and then the Chinese Air Force gets involved, and it becomes a hot conflict in the region. Uh, you know, if, if, if that were to continue past that into a war, it would be the Americans blockading uh, Chinese access to oil. doesn't mean the Americans have to fight the Chinese directly. They just close down the Straits of Hormuz, the Straits of Malacca, the Chinese shipping. Uh, and then what does China have? 
It's surrounded by hostile neighbors. Uh, the Russians might have pity on China, but uh, the Chinese know that once they have no oil and they're not trading, and it's sort of a pre-war kind of situation, their economy will collapse, and the legitimacy of the Communist Party will collapse. So I, I think the Chinese are very vulnerable on this, and I think uh, Trump has probably been advised that this is true, but you know he hasn't prepared the American people for this kind of intervention. Hmm. How will the rest of the world uh, react if Trump uh, goes in and does strike North Korea? It reminds me of uh, when Ronald Reagan bombed Libya in 1986. I think you're going to have a lot of countries, for domestic political reasons, are going to condemn it. You know, Trump is crazy. That's why he he bombed North Korea. The problem is, if you don't bomb North Korea. Uh, you know, uh, in, in the same way when Reagan uh, could have not bombed Libya, is the, the, the North Koreans are going to not only engage in the terrorist activities I described earlier, they're going to do what they were doing before, which is sharing nuclear weapons technology. So they're going to go on the market and tell anybody, you want a centrifuge system, you want a, a plutonium a breeder reactor, you want to learn how to build a long-range missile, we'll show you. Now, there's not that many uh, states in the world to buy from them. Uh, you know, I, I could imagine Iran might, but mm. Iran might also be smart enough not to. Um, but, but here you've got a vendor. So if North Korea isn't stopped, they're going to sell. Now, they might sell anyway, even if you bomb them. But at least this way you can bomb them again later because they won't have a nuclear umbrella. Uh, where does Nor- North Korea fit into the world of terrorism? Are they not scared of making deals with these people? Well, the, uh, they're not going to. I don't think they're going to sell to uh, to terrorists. They have they have provided support to terrorism. Um, uh, they've um, you know sort of terrorist like activities. They've printed American money to to facilitate terrorism. They they've sold methamphetamines to, uh, to support terrorism. But uh, they're not going to support uh, ISIS. I mean, they're not going to get involved in the Middle East that way. The, the, the level of threat they pose is, is really much higher. State to state type of interaction. Uh, with Pakistan, they, they gave a no-dong missile, and in exchange, they got centrifuge technology to enrich uh, uranium. So that's the kind of level of interaction. Uh, they're not, they're not going to sell a bomb, I think, a suitcase bomb to a small terrorist group. What, do, what does Trump strike if he decides to do that, and won't that just tip the first domino? Well, there's, there's 18 cities in North Korea. Uh, the biggest one is Yongbyon. That, that, that's where the uh, Russians built the, um, uh, the Koreans a research reactor. It's actually on the site of the old Japanese Army nuclear weapons program of World War II, which didn't get very far. But when the Russians came, they took it over. So you have 18 of these facilities across the country. They include um, uh, plants. You've got four uh, uranium mines. You've got several uh, unfinished reactors. So of those 18 cities, you've probably got about 100 targets, you know, different kinds of plants. Uh, the big problem is the North Koreans have an air defense system. The main system there is the SA-3 GOA and the SA-5 Gammon. And these are old but very big missiles to shoot down airplanes. The Americans could come in with cruise missiles and with stealth aircraft and blow them up. And they don't, they don't have to blow them up all at once. They could blow them up over a period of a week. Um, and, and then if, if North Korea uh, retaliated, for example, they put shells on Seoul, because Seoul is, you know, it's got 25 million South Koreans living in there, but half the population, and they're right up next to the North Korean border, and a part of the city is in range of some of their longer uh, pieces of artillery, then the Americans could just continue bombing North Korea. Um, they did this uh, during the Korean War, and it was, it was generally successful. Uh, the Korean cities, you know, their, their, their infrastructure uh, is close to mountains, so there's some cover. Um, but in general, North Korea is quite a small place. I mean, the big issue is, are the Chinese just going to sit there and let the Americans uh, unravel North Korea from the air? And at, w- at what point do you deem any of this a success? How far do you take it? How far do you go? Yeah, that's the 
problem. I mean, there, there's a big temptation once you've taken out North Korea's nuclear weapons program to then, uh, you know, deal with the regime, to, to cause yeah. regime change. And that's difficult. I mean, the North Korean soldiers from the North are not lazy. Uh, they fought really well in the 1950s. We haven't seen them fight since, uh, but they have a reputation for um, efficiency given their general lack of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very similar. I had a, a teaching assistant once, a teaching assistant once who, who had worked for the GRU, which is the Soviet military intelligence during the Cold War, and he had trained um, uh, Asian armies, including the Vietnamese. And he told me that uh, they, they come in, they studied really hard, and they were highly professional. And I think the North Koreans would be. So it would be, it would be a quarantine. It would be much like um, hitting Saddam in 1991, disabling Iraq, and then having to have a no-fly zone over it for the next uh, 15 years. The problem, of course, is that uh, it's hard to do that. It's hard to have a no-fly zone in North Korea next to China. Does Kim Jong-un have a plan B and C for all of this? I mean, is he smart enough to come up? Is he smart enough to know what the reaction to the rest uh, from the rest of the world will be if he starts down this path? You know, he's educated abroad uh, uh, in Europe, so you know he has some idea of how the world works. I, I think he's under a lot of pressure. Uh, he lives in a country where um, uh, North Korea is protecting uh, uh, broader Korean nationalist interests. I mean, he's standing up to the Japanese in the way that the South Koreans uh, try to but fail. I mean, in Japan, you have temples. Uh, that contain uh, the ears of of, of over 100,000 Korean civilians that were uh, massacred by the Japanese. And the Koreans have been asking the Japanese to bring them home. And the Americans are have not been effective in interceding on behalf of the South Koreans. So the North Koreans feel that they're the ones who are genuinely protecting the interests of all Korean people. And, and while the North does bluster about blowing up South Korea, um, uh, some of the youth in South Korea are sort of proud that the Koreans have a bomb. Um, and it, it allows them to stand up next to the Japanese. So I think, I mean, Kim Jong-un is being propelled by this nationalism, and this is what's expected of him by the military and by the leading political families. Um, now, uh, uh, they're afraid that if they become slightly more liberal, they'll lose, they'll lose control of their population. There's a, a sort of a, a famous uh, document that was produced by the KGB during the Cold War that, in the 1970s that was given to the, to the leadership. I think it was, it was Leonid Brezhnev at the time, and it warned that, that communism only had a lifespan of 20 more years before the Russian people were going to revolt and overthrow the communist government. It didn't have a specific timeline, but it gave a general impression. I think all communist leaders, whether they're in Cuba or North Korea or China, know that they really don't know their own people. And so they're, they're terrified. And so they play the nationalist card. And I think that's what Kim Jong-un is doing. I mean, he's, he's riding a wild animal, and he, he, he has difficulty getting off. How long before his people realize what's going on, get the influence? Techno- it always surprises me that technologically they can't get the information the rest of the world uh, has access to, even in this day and age. How, you know, you're talking about propping up communism in this day and age. To me, technology is, is its biggest enemy. How, how, how long can he keep his people under this blanket? Yeah, no, I, I, I share with you the same uh, confusion, and I, I don't understand how North Korea functions. I think one element, uh, element of it is that the, the Koreans are famously the most Confucian of the Confucian societies in East Asia. Uh, they're very mm-hmm. cliquish. Uh, they have a lot of in-groupism, where, where they, they basically stick with their own group and, and see out-groups, particularly the Japanese and the Americans, even the Chinese as, as out-groups that are dangerous. Uh, there was uh, an, an attempt um, in the late 1950s by the Chinese and Russians to engineer a coup uh, within the regime and displace uh, the grandfather of Kim Jong-un. 
um, Kim Il Sung, and it failed. And so, you know, the Koreans are, are even paranoid about their about their immediate neighbors. And this paranoia drives a lot of their policies. Mm. If you read a news, newspaper in North Korea, I had a student that went over there and brought back a, a couple of samples. Uh, they're all about um, a foreign visitor from from Canada or from Turkey has visited North Korea and is very impressed by their progress on women's education. So they're constantly looking for external affirmation. I mean, they think they're they think they're doing good. Mm-hmm. They think that uh, they're making people's lives better, but they're doing it under uh, constant threat. Hmm. Julian Schofield has been with us, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Concordia University. Julian, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, of course, uh, consumer affairs, uh, former liberal MP and consumer affairs critic, and of course, energy analyst, gasbuddy.com to find out more. He's with us now. Hello, Dan. How are you today? Call me Hurricane Central here by the looks of it. I think I'm just going to take over a new job there if I can. You, I, I'm guessing you've been hopping for the last week. Yeah, and it, hopping on both ends. I mean, I'm hearing a lot of upset people, and some, of course, are taking to the point of shooting the messenger, even though this is the messenger that tried to avoid uh, concentration in the downstream or the refinery sector of the oil industry in Canada. So it's a little ironic. Uh, I'm left with only doing one thing. That's helping people predict prices so that they can actually anticipate these changes. And if people, Scott, I was on with you last week, if people didn't take that to heart, then uh, they lost out on a 14-cent loss. So uh, um, I I can't do much more than that. I can't unscramble eggs once refineries close, once mergers take place, all with the blessing of a compliant uh, group in Ottawa. There's not much that's left to do except to at least give people a heads up as to when prices are going to change. And we tend to do that fairly well here. So no change tomorrow, generally, other than retail margin. But on Thursday, uh, let me just say it here, for Hamilton and for all of the Golden Horseshoe, there will be about a four-centiliter decrease. I know it's not as much as we saw in terms of an increase, but at least it's heading in the right direction. Uh, Will it go back to what we saw before, Harvey? Uh, Not yet. Um, there's a Category 5 hurricane coming in, mm-hmm. uh, which, of course, uh, it doesn't make things easier. But when a refinery closed down, it closes down, uh, the kind of refineries that are now still flooded, some of them in Beaumont, Port Arthur, still are nowhere near coming back online. This afternoon, the Colonial Pipeline, which delivers the bulk of gasoline to the U.S. markets like New York, Baltimore, Washington, will st- restart. It's not clear whether or not they'll have gasoline to support um the restart, but it looks like, you know, other than higher prices, which have gone up pretty much in every state in the U.S., certainly on the eastern seaboard, including Florida, because I see you have a commentator that said that it had not gone up. It's yeah, up so what, so is there a difference between what's happening in Canada and what's happening in the United yeah. States? I mean, we're getting yeah. reports that the prices have already started to drop in the United States. Yeah, they have. Uh, they're starting to trend down with retail margins only, but the uh, wholesale price went up about uh, maximum 40 cents a gallon. In good old Canada, if I do the conversion, it's more like 60, 65. Same problem I I identified in 2008 and 2005. This is what happens when the country decides that it's okay to have a handful of refineries left who don't compete against each other. More importantly, Mm -hmm. fewer there are left, fewer facilities are left. And, of course, uh, you know, we're left really with uh, uh, no way of benchmarking the supply and demand picture in Canada. This is the way we like to do things in Canada. I'm not being, you know, tongue-in-cheek. Uh, we don't want to see any evil. We don't want to hear any evil. We don't speak evil, and no one wants to talk about this. We just buy it from everyone else. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, you know, so again, I'm coming back. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm the guy that tried to make the changes uh, to the Competition Act. 
not just once, but for at least 15 years, until I had my own constituents in Pickering saying, can you find another topic to go on? Hmm. Those same constituents today, I'm sure, are pretty disappointed uh, and uh, are short probably about 20 or $30. So, uh, obviously, we've been hearing more and more about wacky weather and, and you know, situations that are supposed to only happen once every 100 years are happening way more often. Uh, does that lend itself to the refinery discussion at all, which we've had a bazillion times on this show together? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, you know, obviously there's different times now. Can we see maybe uh, rebuilding or refiring up, or is it just too no. too difficult to do that here? No, it's too difficult economically to do it, and it's even worse now with all the regulations. We can't even approve an existing pipeline in this country, for goodness sakes, to send oil, which is already in the ground or heading out uh, on a pipeline that has been 99 or 90% built. Here I'm referring to Energy East. No, uh, you know, there's a different generation. People uh, assume that we can simply go to another type of alternative, like, you know, energy. And I hope we can do that. Uh, but that's not happening yet. And what we are dealing with is we are price takers. Um, Scott, in all of that I've seen here, the price does increase and decrease. It's just we haven't seen the volatility in gas and oil prices over the past two years, mostly because uh, uh, at first Saudi Arabia flooded the market, caused the prices to drop. And ever since then, no one has any confidence that oil is anything more than you know a commodity in which there is plenty of, at least for the foreseeable future. So that's created stability. But every single day, there's nothing changed in the way oil companies in Canada uh, assign prices. They see the New York Harbor price or the Chicago spot price, depending on Eastern Canada, Western Canada. They add their six cents a liter, and today it's about 6.8. They've been doing that for eons. They add the tax of the federal government, uh, which is 10 cents on every liter, the provincial 14.7. They add the carbon tax, which, of course, is another uh, 4.4 cents a liter with HST. Uh, but I'll take the HST off. They add whatever the retail margin is. So you see, you know, five to six cents a liter. If you're on Hiscott Street and uh, Ontario Street and St. Catharines, of course, it's zero or minus one with those two gas stations. But the general price increase and decrease is very predictable. Even in this circumstance, they simply take what the highest price is for gasoline, and they add their uh, their six cents, their taxes, and the retail margin, and Bob's your uncle. There's the price. We, You know, prior to all of this, we talked about, when we talked about OPEC and, and lowering prices and flooding the market, uh, there were stockpiles of oil and, and everything everywhere. How does that play into this discussion? It does in the sense that we saw oil drop because, of course, uh, fewer refineries using oil because they've been shut out or locked in or flooded by the uh, uh, the length, uh, the, the depth of this particular storm, Harvey. Um, now crude is finding a bit of, uh, of a, a bit of a bounce. I haven't looked uh, recently, but if crude is up by, uh, say, a buck and a half or a buck 20, a uh, buck 29 uh, a gallon, it's because the refineries in the United States uh, that were offline are now coming back online and buying crude. So the market is a reflection of what's happening day in, day out on crude. I don't think it's going to hit $50, but, you know, maybe $49 a barrel. Um, and that's pretty much where we are going to be for the foreseeable future. Everybody knows how to produce uh, oil, but we don't have enough producing gasoline. And that's why there's a real shortage in the United States, a leftover from last week when one quarter of all of its production or more was shut down for several days and still, in some respects, remains shut down. Now, next week could be a different matter. Uh, but what makes things more complicated is which way is Irma going? Right. If Irma decides to go up the coast, yeah, you're hitting the southeast coast. 
that's going to disable a lot of uh, infrastructure, do a lot of damage, and hopefully we'll, it'll mitigate life. But uh, if it flips over to Florida, as it did this morning, in other words, the projection changed. It was going to go northwest. Now it's heading up uh, you know, southwest. We could be back into the same problem we are in right now in the U.S. Uh, Gulf Coast with uh, warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico churning this thing up and keeping it very high, very threatening, very dangerous levels and hitting this relatively the same area with the same kind of impact. Hmm. So volatile prices, maybe it's hard to conjecture and speculate. I don't pretend to know which way this is going to go. Uh, but on August the 18th, I blogged uh, on the Gas Buddy website, still there. Watch it. This is going to be a dangerous season. I knew Texas was going to be hit a week before, a week and a half before it happened. I, I get a really sinking feeling about this, and it's only uh, my gut, nothing else. Surprised that it went up to the 130 a liter range. I mean, you know, people were close to paying around a buck. Uh, obviously, now 130. As you've mentioned, um, it's a refinery issue. There just aren't the refineries. Isn't the refineries around that that, that there once were? Um, but how much of this is gouging? Is that is that just the public, uh, you know, is that just the public backlash or is there gouging here? Well, gouging is what is the market and the market is what ha- Canadians have been ha- forced to pay now for some time. Uh, I don't like it any more than anyone else that the gas price last week when we saw $1.30 was based on a, uh, a market price uh, of $2 and uh, what was it $2.18 a gallon, uh, which worked out to uh, about... Uh, 77 76 cents a liter uh, we of course see the 6.8 cents a liter added to that i suppose that's the part that people can complain about i used to refer to it as the ripoff charge chart uh, or charge uh, under the old uh, tomorrow's gas price today.com site and showing the real cost of a monopoly but um, it's hard for me to talk about this because i knew this was going to happen 20 years ago 10 years ago and uh, unfortunately, I'm left with very few options. I don't have much in the way of any opportunities other than to give people what I think is the best thing they can use in the circumstance. And that's a really solid heads up that uh, when, you know, Scott, when 900 CHML runs it, uh, you know, it helps people at least budget a little bit better. But uh, other than that, if Ottawa's taking no interest in benchmarking uh, supply and demand, if everyone's walking around like chickens with their heads cut off saying the best thing to do is to regulate, well, I can tell you right now the price in Newfoundland, in, in uh, the Maritimes, although it's a couple cents cheaper, it's a couple cents cheaper because they don't allow retail margins there, and they're not paying a four and a half cent uh, carbon tax either, not yet, anyways. Hmm. Will weather change this discussion? I mean, if we if we get one of these uh, every year or so, well, we won't get one every year. We haven't had an active season in hurricanes except for Sandy, which many believe is an aberration, and did a lot of damage because of the infrastructure, and we've certainly built up on the east coast. We haven't seen an active weather system since 2008, and prior to that, 2005, and prior to that, 2001. So we were kind of like on, overdue. I hate to put it in that, you know, be right. that crass about it, but we were overdue. Uh, this is what Mother Nature does, and uh, it has a lot to do with uh, the the, uh, the conditions, which tend to be very ripe every several years. We just tend to think of it in terms of uh, the last couple of years that we can remember, but there's nothing unusual about the storms in the Gulf Coast. The 1935 uh, uh, Gulf Coast, uh, I can't remember the name of the hurricane, it was Category 2, flooded Houston. 1900 killed thousands of people in, you know, southeast of Corpus Christi. So, you know, we tend to think of climate and these things only in our own narrow focus of the past couple of weeks. But 
I think we have to look a little further, know that this is going to happen, and it could be a devastating year. There's a lot more infrastructure today than there was 100 years ago. Uh, obviously, as uh, the summer driving season uh, comes to an end, normally we'd see prices dip a little bit. Uh, as we're heading into the winter season, how does this? Ch- how does? The, how, how do we? How do we look at the future? I mean, is this? Does this mean an ugly winter season? It could mean an ugly colder winter season. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate out there, but I think we're heading into a much colder period, anyways. Between now and 2020, 20, 2035, the world is going to start to cool down, um, and as <laughs> We don't call it, uh, you know, global warming anymore. We call it climate change because, of course, we can't prove that it's warm. In fact, when it's getting colder. But regardless of that debate, I think the fact is this summer, this summer is going to lead to a much more expensive fall. We're looking at uh, weather that is a lot wetter than it's been over the past 20 or 30 years. Many people pray for the kind of <laughs> summer we had. Uh, and, and, of course, the table, water tables in the Great Lakes that you and I are looking at right now yeah. in Lake Ontario. Uh, those are now up to where they should be, perhaps a little higher than some would like. But I, I sense that this winter is going to be a lot colder. So I'm seeing diesel prices. I finished a, an interview with a reporter out west on commodities, interest in diesel only. And we're about 40 cents a gallon more expensive on diesel. That's the key to me for natural gas and for propane. Uh, what about as we head into the winter season, things you mentioned, propane, which isn't regulated. I mean, will people who are heating using other alternate forms of fuel, will they see the, the spike this fall? Not like we did four years ago when Canada uh, you know, foolishly sold all of its propane, uh, sorry, all of its propane stocks to the U.S. Um, but I think we will see a, you know, a, a rise in natural gas and propane. Uh, related to uh, greater demand, also uh, potentially colder weather than we've seen over the past few years. So uh, let's say that um, we recover from Harvey and uh, Irma isn't as big or is, you know, even if it does do the same sort of thing uh, and, and slow down the recovery from Harvey for, for a bit, will we see prices back down around the dollar mark, do you think? Well, the dollar mark was a bit of a head fake. It should have been a dollar ten, but yeah. retailers were choosing not to uh, pass on their uh, their price, their uh, uh, the retail margins. Many so, say that when it goes uh, it goes up, it goes up a certain amount, but when it comes yeah. down, it doesn't come down as much. And right now, they don't want to do that because in an environment where your prices are rising five and six cents a liter every day, as we saw last week, no retailer wants to be caught selling gasoline at a at a, at a dead loss of five to six cents a liter. It's okay to hot dog and say I want to bring in more of my clients by offering you gas prices at retail, which are the same as my wholesale prices. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you do that in the next day, suddenly, as you saw last Friday, gas prices on the wholesale side rise $0.08 cents plus HST, you're, uh, you're going to be either questioned by your bank uh, or, you know, uh, by your shareholders. Hmm. So uh, when can we expect to see them start to uh, get down more towards normal then, providing the weather after the, the, you know, the second hurricane goes through, if providing it's a calm fall after yeah, that? I think you're by, by, we should have a better idea by uh, Canadian Thanksgiving uh, where we stand. Um, these two storms, if they do pass without any, any issue, well, like if Irma passes without issue, uh, then we'll have to watch what's behind it. I see Hurricane Jose or uh, Tropical Depression. Jose isn't very far off. Um, but that's not expected to make landfall. I just think you're going to see a very active season. Uh, they'll probably run out of names by the end of the year, and they've done that before. We're going to have one of those years. Uh, so as long as it gets it's, it gets a little weird down there, then um, and you see a lot more of these storm behaviors and activities, uh, at least until November, um, it's likely that uh, we could see high volatile prices at the pumps.
read into and well past uh, Thanksgiving. Dan, do you think this is going to change the discussions centered around carbon taxing? Uh, when everyone was talking about this, uh, the price of gasoline was relatively low. Now it's jacked up 30 cents a litre, 20, 30 cents a litre. Will this change the discussion? Well, I think you'll, those who are... Especially if, you got a, if, yourself, if you've got yourself a great big uh, Ford F-150... Uh, no, I got a four-cylinder Ford Escape that uh, gets pretty good gas mileage. <laughs> I can afford, <laughs> but I got five kids, and I don't think I can put them in a smart car. And I don't think electrical cars are going to get me as far as I need. The range is not there yet. I think it works both ways. So the, the dividing lines on this is is pretty pronounced. Uh, those who believe the sky is falling will uh, will say this is evidence that uh, these are hurricanes. We've never had them before. Therefore, these bad hurricanes mean that we have to have taxes and we have to get serious. On the other side, people are going to say, get a grip. Uh, finally, this is starting to cost money. I didn't realize that it's cost me four and a half cents. Uh, and it's costing me everything else in terms of my hydro bills because of the pursuit of the green energy uh, uh, dream. So, I mean, there's on both sides of this issue. I think the sides are going to become much more hardened, and I think you're going to see uh, a lot come out of this. I, I know, uh, thankfully, I'm not in politics anymore, but uh, it'll be interesting to watch uh, as higher prices begin to bite and Canadians wake up to the reality that uh, uh, lack of competition in their country, which they've allowed to slip away, and, of course, higher prices uh, are a double whammy. We have had it pretty good for a, for a few yeah. years as far as gas prices. Is this over? No, I don't think it's over, but I think it's uh, likely to lead into you know a, a permanent ten cent increase. So you know you, that dollar you were talking about would be more like a dollar ten, and of course with other taxes being added on and uh, likelihood of some regions seeing changes in the way in which they uh, they they apply uh, or look for or can maintain the refineries could lead to uh, further closures. At, at, at this point, it's not clear that's going to happen, but I sense that. Uh, Oil will remain where it is in the $50 range, uh, some up, some down, but it certainly won't be back to 30 um, OPEC is li- likely going to uh, continue to sell more oil towards the Far East. Uh, Venezuela is in trouble. Uh, Canadian oil is in high demand, especially U.S. refiners, most of whom love Canadian heavy oil. Uh, much of the U.S. exports of their own light oil is because they can't process it domestically. So I think there's still a huge market and still unknowns for oil. The bigger reason, even the, the greatest reason, lack of investment in future oil discoveries. That may not become apparent today or next year, but it will in three or four years when we wind up realizing that we've drained a lot of our wells and that we have to make those investments to more expensive places around the world. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs Critic, and of course, Energy Gas Analyst, GasBuddy.com to find out more. And Dan says, some relief by Thursday, and about four cents a litre. Not as much as you'd like, but certainly it's going in the right direction. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Always, always. Thanks for having me again, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.